This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. About three years ago, I was staying in a uh, small motel in the beautiful rolling hills of southern Iowa. And there are beautiful rolling hills in the southern Iowa. And one of the guests that was staying there, a young woman I'll call Amy, uh, well, also, let me back up. So next door to this motel is a Catholic church, and in that Catholic church, on the grounds of that Catholic church, is a station to the cross, where there are crosses where you can actually, not that big, but they're actually big enough so you can pick them up and carry them and sort of do your own stations of the cross. So she was gleefully telling me about her experience at Station of the Cross. So she said this, she said, I picked up that cross, I carried it for a few steps, I threw it on the ground, and I stomped on it, and I said, I'm free. And I pride myself in like saying nice things when people say unnice things, you know? Like, like I'm, I th- I'd like to think I'm winsome and disarming. And honestly, I was like, I wasn't angry, I wasn't outraged, but I had nothing to say. I didn't know what to say. So there was just like this awkward silence for like 30 seconds. We just kind of stared at each other. And, and then that was the end of the conversation. And again, I didn't feel angry. I felt pained. And the best way to describe it is I felt pained like I'm standing next to somebody and we're looking at an original Rembrandt and somebody takes a handful of cow dung and throws it at the painting. And I'm like, why why did you do that? Why would anybody do that? I just don't understand. I'm so confused. I feel like pain. Tonight, I want to talk about why did I feel that way? Why should I have felt that way? Why is that a proper and right feeling for that situation? This night, you will be invited up here to kneel before the cross. Some of you will touch the cross. Some of you will hold the cross. Some of you will kiss the cross. Some of you will venerate the cross. Some of you, that's language you're not comfortable with, and that's okay. But some of you will come here, and you will, maybe the way you'll put it is you'll worship Jesus, and the cross is a symbol. What makes the cross so special, so sacred? Well, Isaiah 53 is a beautiful biblical text, an entry into that question to answer the question, what is so special about the cross that we would come and pray and pour out our anguish and expect to receive something from the Lord on this night? Isaiah 53, I want to invite you to turn to this passage because what I want to do is walk through this passage together and and just linger in this and savor this text and not hurry our way through it. Because this is a majestic text, a brilliant text with a kaleidoscope of images and poetry and different ways of saying the same thing. And, 
And, and one of the things I love about Rez is that, is that you as a people, you, you love studying the Scriptures. So when us, us preachers are up here, we feel like we're not just dumping things on you, but we're like learning together. We're discovering together. And, and that's what I want to do tonight. I want to look at this together. Isaiah 53 in the English Standard Version of the Bible, which I'm using, is 406 words. It's compact. It is rich. No wonder the New Testament makes at least 50 different direct quotes or allusions to this chapter. Very special to the writers of the New Testament, very special to the early church. It begins in verse, actually verse, chapter 52, verse 13, where it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Behold, you know, so that's a new literary unit that's starting here. So the actual, the unit starts back there in chapter 52. And it's all about this servant. And so who is this servant? It's like a mini biography about a servant. Who is he? What is his role? What is his mission? How does that intersect with our lives like 2,700 years later? What he did, how do, what difference does that make in our life? Well, let me just say, the servant is a very important theme all throughout Isaiah, and it, it's, it's something that runs alongside, and it's something that runs through the Jewish people, and that's really important. But it's also broader that this is going to be for many nations. So it's rooted in the Jewish people, but branches out into all kinds of different directions. This is a shocking story. Look at chapter 53, verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? That, that phrase, the arm of the Lord, is like God is going to work. God is going to just act in power and authority and deliverance. And how is he going to do that? How is God, the arm of the, the Lord, going to be revealed? Well, you're not going to believe it. You will not believe this. It's not what you were thinking. Not what you were expecting. This is going to be a story of violence. This is going to be a story of injustice. This is going to be a story of rejection, a story that seems like utter failure, that seems like complete defeat. And yet he triumphs somehow. So I'll give you the end of this story. We'll just flip to the end. Chapter 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. So this servant... He's going to look back on all the things that happened to him, all the horrible things that happened to him, all the suffering he went through, all the injustice that he went through, all the sorrow and grief he carried in his own body. He's going to look back on it, and he's going to go, that was all worth it. I see it. I can't forget it. But I'm satisfied because something was accomplished through that that you and I cannot accomplish. So what I want to do is break this down into three parts. The weight of our sin. The weight of our sin. The glory of our sin bearer. And the force of forgiveness. So let's look first at the weight of our sin because this is a long section and it's kind of depressing to be honest. Well, it's not depressing, but it's just, it's hard. It's hard to hear and it's hard to preach. So I don't relish preaching this part, but I need to because it's right here in this text. What does it mean to live in a world that is torn and lacerated and wounded by sin? The power of sin, what does that mean? 
for us. And look at verse 4. So it doesn't start with our sins per se, but it starts at the effects of living in a sinful world. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs and our carried our sorrows. Now we'll get to the sin bearer, but for now, just those phrases, our griefs, our sorrows. The Bible takes that very seriously. Our griefs and our sorrows. God never says, well, it, doesn't, it shouldn't have hurt, or that, that sh- it wasn't that bad. There are results of sin in every human being, every person in this room either is or was or will be carrying burdens of griefs and sorrows. Every human being, everywhere. I've watched in Papua New Guinea a young mother collapse in the dirt and shriek in grief when she was told that her child had just died. Bishop Stewart and I have been in northern Nigeria. We've watched mamas, older mama Nigerian women, praying over children who saw their parents murdered. The Bible says this is like Rachel weeping for her children, weeping because they are no more, and the world is filled with Rachels. And even in the affluent West, we try to avoid it, but does it not overtake us? The hurt, the sorrow, the betrayal, the disappointment, and they're real. Again, this is the the weight of what it means to live in a sinful, fallen world that is torn away from its maker. The weight of sin, verses 5 and 6, there's another aspect to it, and that is actually our sins, and it says he was pierced for our transgressions, our iniquities. Those two words basically mean the same thing. It basically means a breach of trust. It means rebellion. It means a rupture in a relationship because one side of the relationship has rejected the other party. And in this equation, it's, it's us having rejected the living God and rebelling against him. And, and notice verse 6, because this is just a really powerful verse, and we started our service with this. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Look at three things about this verse. So first, notice the way it starts, all, and then the last word of, this, of the verse is all. All, all. Is there anybody who doesn't have, doesn't struggle with transgression and iniquity? It's all. It's everyone. And we have turned. That has the idea of intentionality, like I have chosen to turn. There's something in me. I have a, I have a will. I have a little, I have a chooser inside of me, and it's, it's, it's damaged, and it's dysfunctional, and it's broken, and it's captive to powers, but it's still, it's still in me, and there's still, it's still, I'm responsible for it, what I do with it. And so we have turned, it's intentional. And then notice that phrase, his own way, everyone. And I love the way the ESV sets that apart with the the dashes there. Everyone has turned to his own way. You know, uh, you might not be old enough to remember this, depending on how old you are, but back in 1969, there was a hit pop song, sung by by a man named Frank Sinatra. He didn't write it. But it's a song called My Way. And I mean, when Frankie sings it, he's smooth. So it sounds really nice. But here's what he says. Regrets, I've had a few. 
I think, are you kidding me? It's like, about a few hundred, few thousand for me. But anyway, regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I did it my way. Sure, I bit off more than I could chew. I love that in the job interview. What's your greatest weakness? Well, sometimes I bite off more than I can chew. Um, sure, I bit off more than I could chew. I faced it all and I stood tall. I did it my way. So I say, not in a shy way, oh no, oh no, oh no, I did it my way. And I read those lyrics and I go, oh my goodness, how pompous can you get? And then I think, you know, take another look at it. We're all smoother than that. We have more self-awareness than that. We have more emotional intelligence than that. But I think we all have a Frankie inside of us. Actually, that's what chapter 53, verse 6 says. Everyone has turned to his own way. I want to do it my way. And there are consequences to this. First, it ruptures our relationship with God. It, we have gone astray. Secondly, it, it ruptures the social order. So in, if you read the book of Isaiah, that when the people of God walk away from the presence of God, orphans and widows are always hurt by their disobedience. Always. No exception. It's like a burlap cloth where you have, you have strands running this way and then strands running this way. You take a scissors and you cut it. They get cut in both directions. That's how God has set up the fabric of the world. That's the, the, the Old Testament concept of shalom. And when one is broken, they're both broken. And there's one more consequence, and that is the judgment of God upon our sin. What the Bible calls the wrath of God, and I know that's a hard phrase to hear. We don't like to hear that. But what does that mean, and why is that so important? Well, sin is a colossal tearing of everything this way and that way. And when I talk to my friends who are really skeptical about Christianity and they're like, I, I, don't, I don't buy that. If I'm going to believe a God of love, I'm, I, if I'm going to believe in God, which I don't, I'm going to believe in a God of love. I was like, I think, but what do you want God to do? Okay, there's, there's violence, there's corruption, there's dishonesty, there's immorality, there's greed, corporate greed, there's personal greed, there's racism, there's apathy. And what do you want God to do? Just ignore it? Pretend it's, it's, not, it's not a big deal? God cannot do that without ceasing to be God, which he can't cease to be God. So wrath is God's holy response to all that is wrong, that all is in opposition to his perfect shalom for the world. And he is opposed to it at the same time being unrelentingly committed to the sinner in love. So sin is a real thing. It's, it's like, the best way I can picture it, it's like a cement block. It's like a big, ugly cement block. It's got weight. It's got mass to it. It's solid. It's not just ethereal. It's not just in our heads. It, it's real. It's substantial. So we have to get this right before we understand what, why it's so glorious that this one comes along and bears our sin. So who is this servant, this sin bearer? Well, look with me at, at uh, 
chapter 52, verse 13, it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. My, my friend Andy Abernathy, Old Testament scholar, he helped me understand this. So there's only there's four times when that phrase high and lifted up is used in the book of Isaiah. It's used here, and then it's used three other times. And the other three times, it's used of God Almighty. Almighty God. The Lord God Almighty. So in Isaiah chapter 6, it talks about the angels that are around the throne of God and they're crying, holy, 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 because the Lord is high and lifted up. So this is only used in reference to God. And yet here it's a servant. So how can this servant be Almighty God? So now you can understand why the church, reading this backwards, said, oh, wait a minute. You know, I can understand how some people reading it forwards might not read it that way, but reading it backwards, we can't not, not see Jesus in this as the one who's high and lifted up. And here we enter into the shocking beauty of the cross. That at the cross, and I'll say this, I'll say this a couple times, but at the cross, there are not three actors. There's not God, Jesus, and then us. There's God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, out of his love for the world, one actor, and us. It's really important. makes all the difference in how we understand the atonement. So who is his servant? Let's look at him in verse, chapter 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men. So you would walk down the street, and you'd see this guy, and you wouldn't go, oh, wow. Now that guy's impressive. I like that guy. That guy is, man, that's, that's a man. That's he's a handsome man. No, it's actually the opposite. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He had like grief all over him. You know, this is sometimes the way well, maybe often, if you've been through a season of grieving, sometimes you, people don't know what to do after a while. Like, I, there was a young woman in my church that I was pastoring out in Long Island, New York, and her husband died tra tragically. She was a young woman. She was 30 years old. And I, I visited her like six months afterwards, and I said, hey, Stacy, how's it going? And she said, well, Pastor Matt, my, I, I have two freezers full of baked ziti, baked lasagna, and casseroles, but I have no one to talk to. They turned away. So we see his grief. He's carrying grief. And whose grief is he carrying? Here's the thing. So we see his grief and we go, wait a minute. That grief looks kind of familiar. I think I, I think I, well, wait a minute. That's my grief he's carrying. That's why it looks so familiar. It's mine. He's carrying my grief. So whatever you're carrying tonight, he was there before you came in here, wanting and willing to carry your grief and your sorrows. Verse 5, he, and the he there in the original Hebrew is emphatic, like he and he alone is how it would translate it. He and he alone was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
So here we are moving in right into the center of the, what the cross is all about, and there's no way to get around that the cross, biblically speaking, was a substitutionary atonement. That someone was substituted for something else. Someone took our place. There is absolutely no way to get around that. That Jesus, this servant, this high and lifted up one, didn't just suffer with us, but he suffered for us. Some of you may know the story of um, Maximilian Kolbe, who was a um, Catholic priest, monk in Auschwitz. Um, some of the prisoners tried an escape. They were caught. And then so in punishment, the guards rounded up 10 random prisoners and said, because your fellow prisoners tried to ex escape, we're going to kill all 10 of you. Just random. One of, them was one of them was not Maximilian Kolbe, but he stood forward and he said, wait a minute, I, I'm, I'm a priest, I'm single, all these men have families, all these men have children, take me. So they took him, they replaced him. He became a substitute for one of the men. That's what substitution looks like. Any kind of human analogy is imperfect, but that's about as close as I could get. And this idea is so important throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, especially the book of Levit Leviticus. And since I've been, my friend Thomas Bohm has been helping me understand the book of Leviticus, I will never, I have repented of ever making fun of the book of Leviticus as a Christian. Because this is an incredible book, a brilliant book, a moving book. And one of the highlights, it's all filled with substitution. So if you want to understand the de death of Jesus, the Leviticus is your, is your key. So the, the, the most clearest example was when the high priest put his hands on the goat, and it says in Leviticus to confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites so that goat could carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place. It was a, this incredible picture, communal picture of substitutionary atonement where the sins were literally placed on the goat and it was a carried away but it was never meant to be permanent. It was never meant to be the ultimate way to take, to take care of a sin. And so now in Isaiah 53, we read of this one who steps onto the world stage, this substitute of substitute, this scapegoat of scapegoats, who will bear and carry the sins of the world. And who is he? He's the high and lifted up one? Him? He will bear the sins of the world. It will crush him. Exactly. It does. Why did he sign up for this? Why would he do this? Look at verse 9 with me. The end of verse 9. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. You know all the powerful people, people that have influence, and, and sometimes when we get it, it's so easy to do violence, maybe not physical violence, but maybe violence with words, maybe just even violence in our thoughts and, and to deceive. The world is filled with violence and deception, lies, so many lies, so much violence. But this one, never violent, never deceived never told a lie. Everything he said was true. And 
when it says that everyone and all we have gone astray, he's not part of that. He's the one exception to that. So this high and lifted up one, this one that bears our sins, again, I want us to really get this idea that because there's this distorted, unbiblical idea that Jesus is really nice, Jesus is really compassionate, Jesus really wants to help us, God the Father is really mad at us, and so he takes it all out on Jesus. Now that's it, and it's just really crude form. And then in order for God to love us, something bad has to happen to Jesus. But it was love that motivated God the Father and Jesus the Son to work together at the cross. So again, not three actors at the cross, but two, the triune God in us. As John Stott says, divine love triumphed over divine wrath by divine self-sacrifice. God himself becomes the scapegoat. Wow. Wow. He bears it away. And now we get to the force of forgiveness. And by force, I don't mean something um, impersonal. I mean a personal, because God is personal. It's a dynamic, powerful, creative force unleashed from the living God to cleanse and renew and to forgive and to console and to comfort. Chapter 52, verse 15, it says, He shall sprinkle many nations. Now, in the Old Testament, sprinkling was either with... Um, uh, oil or with um, blood, but it was all about um, forgiveness. It was all about cleansing, cleansing of sin. It was all about empowering for a task. And notice this, he says it's, it's not just going to be a narrow group of people, it's going to be for many nations. And this is happening around the globe even now that we've seen in the last hundred years this humongous shift from the church in, in all in the global north shifting to now 70% of the church is in the global south, in the many nations. It's actually happening. It's been happening before our eyes. And then, and then look at this, another great verse, chapter 53. I, just, I feel like I'm just like, kind of like hitting the greatest hits of Isaiah 53, just sort of wandering around the greatest hits because there's so much in here. But chapter 53, verse 11 out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied by his knowledge to the righteous one, my servant. Make many to be accounted righteous. So the church saw a reference to this in St. Paul in 2 Corinthians 5.21, where he says, for our sake, God, who was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, he says earlier, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God, which some great theologians have called the wonderful exchange, where Jesus takes upon himself our sin and wickedness, and he clothes us with his righteousness. Amazing. So as one Christian from the 1500s said, Jesus became the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, rebel, blasphemer that there ever was. Not because he was sinful, but because he was bearing sin. He really bore it. It really stuck to him. He wasn't just playing. Now notice, just one more thing. So at the end, it's almost like 
the Lord through Isaiah just kind of keeps repeating himself over and over again. It kind of sounds the same. So at the end of verse 11, he shall bear their iniquities. Um, the end of verse 12, he bore the sin of many, which he already said about five times. And so as I was studying this, I was, I was you know, praying, studying, it's like, Lord, why, why do you say the same? Why is this like the same thing over and over again? And it, it's almost like the Lord is saying, because I don't think you're going to believe it. So let me say it from this angle, and then let me say it from this angle, and then let me say it from this angle, and let me say the same thing from this angle, and then maybe you'll believe it. You'll really believe me. He wants his forgiveness, his consolation to go deep inside us, deeper than all our shame, deeper than all our condemnation. Sometimes we say, if people only knew this about me, if my family only knew, if my friends only knew, if my church only knew, if God only knew, well, he already knows. And let me just say, friends, it is time. It's time for us to lay that to rest. The Bible says, in a favorable time, I have listened to you. This is St. Paul quoting from Isaiah. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Do not wait until you're good enough or better enough or worthier enough or impressive enough or put together enough or your faith is stronger enough. Now is the time. This place, this night, this group of people, it is the favorable time to meet Jesus at the cross with your imperfect life, your sin-scarred life, your grief and sorrow-burdened life. Now is the time to meet him, to touch the cross, to receive from Jesus at the cross, to know and feel his forgiveness, to hear his words, I know your sorrow, I know your grief, you are not alone. I've already felt it. I know your sin. I've already seen it. I've already carried it. It weighed on me. I carried it. It pierced right through me, but I carried it away. It is gone. Now let it go and meet me at the cross. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.